Rafa, you wanna do you wanna start just by telling sharing the uh, sponsorship which we appreciate from you and Jack for today? So uh, my father, Zichronoli Bracha, uh, his your site, what year? Eight? Eight, right? Eight years? Shlomo? Seven. Seven. Seven years? No, 2013. Now he's saying eight. He's agreeing. <laughs> Seven, eight years. I'm like, this month. Anyway, it's uh, uh, um, uh, Yudzain Shvat, which is going to be uh, January 30th. And since you were teaching tonight and not the next week, um, I wanted to take the chance and sponsor this uh, wonderful teaching um, in memory of my father, Sikhwanoli Bracha Harab. Yaakov, David, Weintraub, Ben, Harab, Hagahon, Hatzadik, Aaron, Yifonoli, Bracha. Okay. I don't know if you wanted me to say anything about him. I have my siblings over here and they can chime in. I just wanted to say that my father would have enjoyed your lesson. Thank you. Um, Rabbi Schaffer, because uh, he was the consummate teacher and uh, and educator for for all his life, and uh, he taught everyone, including me. And um, my grandchildren are here, my daughter is here, my children wow. are here, and I'm, uh, they were blessed to to have him in in their life for at least a short while, and um, and and they knew him because uh, he related to them so well. Um, because he was a Malamed of Talmud, of many, many Talmuding all his life. Um, and he is sorely missed. Okay. Um, I just want to add just one word of my own. I, um, while living in Fairlawn, I had the great pleasure of meeting your father, Yaffa, uh, Zichron Livroch. I, uh, as I mentioned to Abe, he, uh, two things that I, 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 really strong memories of him. Number one was when, uh, I heard his, where he's from. Um, it turns out, you would never have believed it, looking at it, but uh, your family comes from Meir Sharim. And Rav Aaron, uh, your grandfather, was a Gaon Olam. I mean, there's no question about it. Was a was a, uh, a famous scholar, and I've seen the Sefer, and wow, this is like Yichas through the roof. But the other thing which I just want to mention is the, the phenomenal... I mean, like, really phenomenal uh, 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 ability to lane. There's laning and laning. You know, there's the Bermitzvah boy, and some are good, some are bad. There's the Rav who does it because, you know, he just has to do it. Uh, when it came to Mr. Weintraub, it was a different story. That that was Avodah Shel Ahava. He absolutely, I, I think the word I'm going to use is relish. Maybe, Abe, is that is that a good word to use? I don't know. He relished laning. And to hear him laying was really an experience. I, uh, it stays in my mind. It was probably seven and, well, you're saying he's, he's been, he passed away eight years ago, so this must be ten years ago at least. And I'm just grateful to have had that connection. May his neshama have an aliyah, and always you will remember him, I hope, for always with good memories. And, you know, and you should think about him in, in that positive way, because he really was a very, a very what we call in Yiddish, what they'd say in Masharim, a tire yid, a very special yid, very special man. Um, I want to just backtrack a little bit on what we started talking about two weeks ago. 
what was scary about the Shi'ur too, we started talking about the Book of Ruth. And I want to say, uh, for the purposes, because um, uh, Abe is on, on this, on this uh, Zoom, uh, I, I gave Shi'urim in Fairlawn about the Book of Ruth, and in fact, this is a different approach. So, it's something which I hope you'll appreciate if you've heard this year before. They're online, they are available at uh, yutorah.org, the original Shi'urim that I gave. And two weeks ago, I started talking about the Book of Ruth, based on a commentary which I actually picked up in Man Sharim. This is a book that I bought probably 12, 13 years ago, and it's by Rabbi Rabinowitz, Elio Akiva Rabinowitz, who nobody's ever heard of, at least I'd never heard of him, you know, and I don't think many people have. And as I explained two weeks ago, I'm just saying over a little bit what we said, um, he was a very unique individual. He was a man who lived at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. He passed away in the year 1919. And he lived, he was a Polish rov, and definitely looked the part, right? Uh, I, I've got a picture of him somewhere, maybe next time I'll find it. And more to the point, he was a very worldly rabbi, and that was very unusual. You have some rabbis that you read, and you can tell that they are rabbis of the Beit Midrash, they were rabbis of the, of the uh, you know, the, the house of study, but they didn't, how should we say today, they didn't go to the library very much, right? There are certain rabbis I know who did go to the library. They read, they, they, there's a rabbi, uh, Tiferes Yisrael, the very famous rabbi Lipschitz, who wrote a commentary, in one of his comments, he's written a 20-page essay on the question of dinosaurs. And he writes about the newspapers and the, the discovery of dinosaurs in the 19th century. He talks about Baltimore, and he talks about other places in Russia where they found dinosaurs. This is a man who obviously went to the library. Uh, where else is he going to get his information? He didn't get it in shul. They may have been talking about it, but he didn't read it there. Um, and there are various rabbis, and Rabbi Rabinovitz was one of these incredible rabbis who honestly, I really believe, was, was, was something very special. I hope people, uh, maybe you can Google him and find out a bit more about him. Elio Akiva Rabinovitz. What we saw last time is that he was very aware of, um, of world history. In his time, that the, the revolutions had taken place, the French Revolution, and in Europe and various other places, and obviously the Russian Revolution, um, which he saw just before he died. And this had an effect on the way that he wrote his commentary on the Book of Ruth. He saw the beginning of the Book of Ruth, not as we usually see it. We normally understand the story, and I'll just, again, very briefly, Elimelech leaves Eretz Israel. he goes away from Israel. Why does he leave Eretz Israel? Because we, we always understand he was very wealthy, and people were coming and begging him for, for food and for help, because it was a famine. And he went with his family, with Naomi and with the two sons, and they went to Moab. They went to Jordan, right? And they went out of Israel. And he abandoned his responsibilities. That's really what it boiled down to. And as a consequence, it says he died, and then his sons died. Uh, before they died, they married, uh, one married Ruth, and one married Orpah. And, you know, we know the story. The story is very well known to us. Said Rabbi Rabinovitz, and this is what I spoke about two weeks ago, is that he said, no, maybe there's a different agenda here. And the point that he tried to make is that let's take a step back and try and understand why this book was written in the first place. Who wrote the book of Ruth? Shmuel. Shmuel Anavis, Prophet Samuel. 
Now, he lived about, I don't know, 50 to 100 years, I'm not sure exactly. Let's call it 75. 75 years after Ruth and Boaz and the whole story took place. So why was Samuel recording this story for posterity many years after it happened? What was Samuel's agenda? Prophet Shmuel, why did he write it down? What was he hoping to achieve? And we explained that Shmuel in his generation had a tremendous issue to deal with, which was the validity of David Hamela. He had been commissioned by, by God to go and anoint King David. But the problem was that there were people in the Jewish community who, who said quite clearly that David Hamelech was not kosher. They said he wasn't a kosher, and not kosher means he wasn't a kosher Jew. With all the Tehillim and everything that he wrote, people were saying, David Amalek is not kosher. The guy who stands out, who did this, a gentleman by the name of Doeg. Doeg was one, if you read about him, it's in the book of Shmuel, Alam. Look around chapter 21, 22, you'll come across Doeg. This is not a, not a nice person to have around, but he became the opposition. He claimed that David was not a kosher Jew. Meaning, literally, he wasn't Jewish. Why? Because he's descended from Ruth. So what's the problem? Ruth is a Moabite. And said Doeg, there's a rule in the Torah, Moabite men, right? Um, sorry, Moabites cannot become Jewish, period. Moabites cannot become Jewish. So, of course, we know that the rabbis stepped in at that point, right at the beginning in the days of Ruth, meaning Boaz stepped in and said, but that applies only to the men and not to the women. The women can become Jewish. But this was a controversial decision, right? A decision which did not go down well with a number of people who did not accept that as a tradition at that point. And it sort of ha- it was hanging in the air for many years. Along comes David Amala being anointed by Shmuel, and all of a sudden everything blows up again. What happens is that everybody turns around and says, David to be the king, or some people say that David to be the king, how can he be the king? He's not Jewish. He's descended from Ruth, and Ruth was not a kosher Jew, she wasn't converted according to Halakha. Um, that became a big fight. And in the days of Shmuel, he wanted to put this whole Parsha once and for all behind everybody. He wrote the book of Ruth to establish not only who Ruth was and that the convert, the conversion and the whole story was, uh, was, was absolutely bona fide, but more to the point, in the generation of Shmuel in sound, people like Doeg would not be given the, what we nowadays we would call the airtime. He wouldn't be given the ability to express these opinions. He would be finally made quiet. He could not go against the rule. Once and for all, it was established that David was a kosher Jew. Once and for all. But in the process, what what Rabbi Brinovitz explains is that Shmuel had a couple of other agendas. One agenda was about David, but another agenda was about this guy Doeg. What was Doeg, this gentleman who was against David, what was, what was really the problem? And he suggests, and I, I, I go along with this, Doeg was a great scholar. The problem was he was also someone who thought very highly of himself. Um, you know, you don't have to go far in politics to find people like this. And 
we celebrate today, we celebrate today a, a, a change. We celebrate something. I just felt today there was, a, there was an air of dignity about what was being said, which I, I don't know, I just felt it had been missing for quite a long time. I hope, I'm not going to say much more than that, but I think you know what I'm saying. The, 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 the question of Doeg uh, um, challenging David in, in that generation was really about Doeg saying, I want to be number one. I want to be the leader. I'm the head of the Sanhedrin, one of the great, great uh, scholars, and I should be the guy running the show. So, of course, what happened was Shmuel had to deal with Doeg. And he says to Doeg, let's look at the story of Ruth. Go back to the beginning of the story and look at Elimelech. And this is, again, what we spoke about last time. Just going to repeat it very briefly. Elimelech was a tremendous person in terms of his ability to do good if he wanted to do good. The problem was, his name gives it away, Eli Melech, two Hebrew words, Eli Melech, to me is king. Meaning, it says it all. He really, underneath it all, his aspiration was to be the king, or in those days what they would call the judge, the shofet. So Eli Melech goes to Moab, says Rabinovitz, very, very different interpretation, not just to run away from Israel, to get away from all the people who are knocking on his door, but he's actually going there to put a proposition to the Moabites. The Moabites are not our friends, right? They're not our friends, even today they're not our friends, whatever you want to call them, Palestinians or whatever. The reality of it is that what... Um, Elimelech was proposing was that he wanted to raise an army, says Rabbi Rabinovitz, really out, outrageous interpretation, to bring an army back to Eretz Israel and to take over coup d'etat, to take over the country. Now why he says that is interesting because he says just the, the thought of Elimelech taking his family to Moab is so strange. There's got to be you know, a bigger reason than just running to the nearest country, especially a country which is not so friendly, even in those days, and certainly today is, you know, with all the issues, it's not a place you normally run to. You maybe would have run to Egypt or run somewhere else. Why did he run to Moab? Sir Rabinovitz wanted to suggest he ran to Moab to raise an army, and he had the, the financial means to do it. And if he raises an army and he brings those people back to Eretz Israel, he can begin the process of taking over. And of course, who had been elected as the judge? Boaz. Boaz was one of the judges, one of the Shoftim. So what Elimelech would do is, by force, if he wasn't elected by the choice of the people, then he'll do it by force. A coup d'etat. He literally would take over the country. That was the suggestion. It was a wild suggestion. But it fits beautifully into what we're going to be talking about this evening, which is the issue right at the beginning of the behavior of the boys. Machlon and Kilian, as I explained last time again, their names are not necessarily, how should we put it, the names that we would like to find, you know, you know, there's always names that you want to use and names that you don't want to use you know, in the family. Um, there's certain names that you're just sort of a bit wary of, you know, over the years. Uh, my mother's name, had mother, my mother had a wonderful Yiddish name, Yetta. But the problem was that that was wonderful 50, 60 years ago. Today, people don't call their kids Yetta. Except my daughter, wonderful as she is, and she really was brave, she used it to name one, uh, her, her, her daughter, Karen. She's known as Karen Ahava Yetta. 
Okay, and I warned, I said, if you name your daughter Yeta, my granddaughter, you've got to be prepared not only to, to bear the name, which is not a terrible thing, but the personality of my mother. That's the different story. And my granddaughter reminds me of my mother. It's really quite scary, but there you go. That's genetics and who knows what. It, what I'm saying is, is that the name Machlon, Machlon comes from the idea, from the Hebrew word Machala, something you know, something not well, something very uh, uh, unwell. And Kilion comes from the Hebrew word lechalod, which means to destroy. So what sort of names do you give these boys? The, you're, you're the sick one and you're the destroyer. You know, it's strange names. So in fact, those were not their real names. Those were what essentially became, let's, I don't know how you're going to call it, nom de guerre. These are the names which they took on as uh, nicknames or whatever. It's a bit like the guy in the, in the story later on in Shmuel, the story of Naval. Naval was a very low-life individual. Naval in Hebrew means a very unpleasant person. That was his name. And, and Machlon and Kilion, maybe it wasn't their real name. It just suggests who they were. These were not good people. They were bad people. So what we're going to deal with this evening, in the story... In the story of Ruth, sorry, is there a question? I can't, no, all right, let me, let me just finish the introduction a little bit. In the story of Ruth, one of the big challenges before, uh, we know Elimelech dies, but, but, but Machalon and Kili, we know they marry these two Moabite princesses. And we explained that, according to Rabbi Rabinovitz, the reason why they married them is because when the father died, Elimelech, the sons wanted to carry on the enterprise which the father had begun. How do you endear yourself to the Moabites? By marrying the princesses. Alright? You know, political marriage is something that's been around forever. Uh, and, and it's something which we see in that particular story. The question which the rabbis have really been struggling with is that there is, without, without any um, uh, other interpretation... The fact that Machlon and Kilion, the two sons of Naomi and Elimana, married Moabite women without a conversion. There seems to have been, when they were in um, the fields of Moab, at the place where they went to, they married and they weren't converted. And this gives the rabbis a tremendous headache. They cannot, let's put it this way, they find it very hard to handle that particular approach. And what I want to show you is the range of opinions and the halakhic compromise that is made. Now, whether you like the compromise, I don't know. But, you know, they, you can see that they're all struggling. Let me show you the page. I'll show you what, what, what exactly I'm going to be referring to. And you'll see what, what's going on here. This is really something else. Now, I don't want to get too complicated, so let me go to this one. Here we go. Have a look at this. I try to make it very uh, simple. So it says, the question of conversion, right? Machlon and Kilion married Ruth and Orpah. Were the, was there some sort of conversion? Or was there no conversion? That's the question for this evening. Right back to the beginning of the story. So listen to this, the Targum. This is opinion number one. Targum is the translation into 
Aramaic, into the vernacular, which was always part of the tradition of Tanakh. There was always a translate. Nowadays we would say we translate into English, the art scroll. In those days they all spoke Aramaic, so they wanted a translation from the Hebrew, surprisingly, which was not so well known, into the Aramaic, which was very well known. It was the spoken language. So listen to this. I, I, I found this um, on, uh, on a webpage, and it really is quite extraordinary. It says what happened with the marriages in Moab, the sons of Elimelech. So uh, I'll read the Hebrew the, or the Aramaic, but you've got the translation here. The, the Targum says they, they broke the law of God. They transgressed the law. And they married foreign wives. Min benot Moab, from the daughters of Moab. Shum Chada Orpah, the name of one was Orpah. Shum Tinyeta, Rut, the second one was Rut. Bat Eglon, and it's the daughter of Eglon. Really, I think it's the grand or great-granddaughter of Eglon, a king that was mentioned right at the beginning of the book of Judges. Malka de Moab, the king of Moab. V'yativu Taman Kizman Asashanim, they were there for ten years in Moab. Unbelievable. And this is truly unbelievable. And, and it goes on. The, uh, and and the, the, uh, the Targum really is, is a commentary. So some, I'm not sure who the Targum on the book of Ruth is. On the Torah, it's a gentleman by the name of Unculus. Or somebody used to call him Uncle Lewis. But his name is Unculus. It was a Roman name. Right? Very great scholar. The Targum on the book of Ruth is more likely to be Targum Yonatan. Again, a very early rabbinic gentleman. And look what he, he, he takes upon himself to answer one of the most incredible questions that we have. What was the consequence of these mixed marriages? What happened in the end? And he says, that, and this is the, all the targum, it's, it's not in the text, but he says, the next piece, because they broke the word of God by marrying these foreign women, they're married foreign wives. Their days were cut short. They were punished. They died. Because we know that they died young. They both died. After they died in this, in this unclean place. Because it was not Eretz Israel, It was Moab. Vishtarat itata matkala, they left behind a, a widow. Uh, what does it say in the English? Here? They, and the woman was bereft of her two sons and widowed of her husband, referring to Naomi. Right? She'd lost her husband and now she lost her two sons. So, according to the Targum, there's no question, as far as the Rabbi Targum is concerned, the reality was that Machlon and Kilian did not go to the local Bet Din. There wasn't a local Bet Din to go to. They didn't go to the local rabbi. They didn't start a discussion about conversion. They married non-Jewish women. I guess, who knows, maybe it wasn't even a ceremony. right? According to the, the tradition, maybe in their, in their world, they would just live together and that would be their, their, their concept of marriage. All right, which is something which uh, is is talked about. The Rambam talks about it, but I don't want to go through that now. Listen to the Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra, a thousand years after the Targum, approximately, maybe a bit less. Middle Ages, classic, classic commentator on the Torah, on the Tanakh. Ibn Ezra was a phenomenon. Look what he says. 
Machlon and Kilion, he's, he's read the Targum and he's having apoplexy over it. It says, Lo yodanu hamikrim shayu al shenikro kein. Right? Firstly, he's, he's worried about the names. Why were they given these awful names, called by the names which are really not nice names? Kamo Yisachar, Gam Mosheb. He basically says that this was just the names that they had. You know, he wasn't going to make a fuss about it. But Ubedurash, he said, I looked into Midrash. Omeshehem Yoash Vesaraf. They had other names, which were much more, I don't know, feet on the ground. Yoash, Saraf, these were what they were known as. Now, why were they called Machlon and Kilion? Because they married these foreign women. They had relations with, with Moab. However, says the Ibn Ezra, we know that the law was established that Moabite women could marry Jews. The, the, the posseh, when it originally says you can't marry Moabites, is only talking about the men marrying Jewish women, but not the other way around. They can't become Jewish, the men, the Moabite men. They can't marry Jewish women. And the Sefer Ezra says, I'm going to talk about that. But here comes the line which is massive. Lo yitachen, it's impossible to consider sheyikha or sheyikhu machlon vekilion elu anashim ad shenitgairu that machlon and kilion would marry the women without before they would be converted. For her aid, elama ve'elaloher, and his proof, he says, because later on, when Naomi says, go back to your people and to your God, the suggestion is that, in other words, they've come towards the God of Israel. So he says that means that they must have had some sort of conversion to become Jewish. Go figure. Ibn Ezra is totally convinced that Machlon and Kilian, when they were standing in the fields of Moab, somewhere near Amman, of the present generation, the present day, they were standing there, there was no rabbi there, whatever, they went through some sort of conversion, Who knows, maybe the, they, they insisted that Ruth and Orpah go for a swim in the River Jordan, and the, even, the, even that's not going to be enough. What, what commitment would they have made to, to observance, which is really the bottom line of conversion? So Ibn Ezra says, but I can't contemplate that this could have happened in any other way. So you've got the Targum on the one hand saying, no way could there have been a conversion. And you know what? I think, I honestly believe the Targum is right. Because they're, you know, just picture yourself. They're in the middle of nowhere. This is like two Jews. Um, excuse me. This is like somebody who's uh, uh, left Israel and ended up in Greenland. Right? There's not even, well, there maybe is Chabad in Greenland by now, but there isn't. And all of a sudden, you know, you want to get married to one of the local women there. So, you're an Israeli, you're, you've moved away from Israel, you find Israelis all over the world, but what are you going to do in a place like Greenland? Are you going to re- realistically get married in any sort of significant Jewish ceremony? And the answer is, no, it's not going to happen. But says Ibn Ezra, he just can't contemplate that these gentlemen could have done anything else. Look at Rashi, because the question I have, and I'm not sure where Rashi is standing in this particular discussion. And I'm just putting it out there because it's such an interesting discussion. Says Rashi, the famous 
uh, statement of Ruth. Remember what happened was that Naomi says, Orpah and Ruth, you've got to go home. Go back to your, 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 um, your family, your home. Go back to, to Moab and everything. Will, and you know, you just can't stay with me. I've got to go back to Eretz Israel. I have no husband. My children have died. I must go back to Israel. So remember what happened. Orpah says, okay, I go. And there's a horrible uh, follow-up to what happened to her. She was abused when she went back. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And Ruth says, no, where you go, I will go. Your God is my God. What's going on in that discussion? Says Rashi, Ki im el telchi elech. Again, I have the English on, underneath. Mikan The rabbis say, when a, when, a, when a convert comes to convert, you tell them a little bit about the negatives of becoming Jewish. Alright? It's not easy to, as you say, it's not easy to be a Jew. So that you give the person a chance to change their mind, to go back. And where do we learn this from? We learn it from Ruth. From the words what Ruth said, we can understand what Naomi must have said to her to get that response. And he goes through each phrase. Listen to this. The first thing that Ruth was told is about Shabbos. Not one of the laws of Shabbos that we like, that there's Chulunt and there's Kigel and all that great stuff. No. She was told that you can't travel out of a certain uh, uh, built-up area more than 2,000 amot. It's about three-quarters of a mile. You can't go for a long walk on Shabbos out of town. That's the law of Tzachum. Not allowed. Right? And in fact, Rabbi um, Rabinovitz, we mentioned at the beginning, he says that the reason why these items came up is because these were things that Ruth had not seen Naomi practice in uh, Moab. Naomi tried to keep a Jewish home as much as she could. Because Naomi was, was a very, very fine person. Elimelech and, and Machlon and Kilion abandoned ship, but Naomi not. And Ruth had not seen anything to do with Tchum Shabbos. She knew nothing about it. So what happened was that Naomi felt, I've got to tell her some of the real bottom line truths. What does it mean to be Jewish when it comes to observing Shabbos? Amrallah Bashet Telchi so she said, Ruth said to her, where you go, I will go. In other words, you can't walk on Shabbos, I accept it. Alright, here comes number two. And this is very difficult because Ruth came from a very promiscuous background. Her society was very, very uh, um, uh, uh, immoral. It was, it, was, it, was, it was famous. So Naomi says to her, we can't be together, boys and girls. We've got restrictions. Yichud. If you're not married, you can't be together. So, what is Ruth going to say to that? She said, Where you sleep, I will sleep. In other words, I commit myself to your Jewish practice of separation. The third thing. Okay, here comes the real heavy number. You've got there's something, I hope someone is, is muting, yeah. You've got 613 commandments to keep. That's, a, that's, that's tough going. 
especially when you explain to the convert that if you stay not Jewish, you've only got seven mitzvahs to keep, you become Jewish 613. That's, that's a commitment. Again, what does Ruth say? Your people are my people. Whatever it is, whatever, whatever I have to do to be Jewish, I will do it. She is totally, totally convinced. And then finally, remember that she came from an idolatrous world. She says, Ruth says to Naomi, your God is my God. I am abandoning idolatry forever. And there's even a discussion about uh, the, the punishments, capital punishment. Ruth is told by Naomi, you're going to be subjecting yourself to capital punishment by the Jewish court. Says Nam, says Ruth, Bashet Tamut, Tamuti Amut. The way you die, I will die. If it if it comes to that, you know, there's no presidential pardons, as they say. We will have to face the reality of capital punishment, and and then also uh, even mentioning burial, because there were certain places they would bury people who were who were liable for certain sins. One place for this group, one place for that group. In other words, what Ruth is being told in no uncertain terms is the fact that Judaism has this wide, wide uh, spectrum of laws and, and, and traditions and whatever. And Ruth says to Naomi, I will accept upon myself whatever you say. Now again, why I'm quoting this Rashi, apart from the fact such a beautiful Rashi, to explain that, that amazing speech of Ruth, but it also suggests to me, in terms of our discussion, was there a conversion of Ruth or not, when she married Machlon? And I think you have to say, the way the Rashi seems to present this, is that before Naomi had the discussion with Ruth, Ruth didn't know any of this stuff. So how could there have been a commitment to mitzvot, to convert, if Ruth did not know any of this stuff, till Naomi explains about Yichud and Tuchum and all these laws which we, which we are familiar with. So I think Rashi, maybe you can bring a proof from Rashi, that he is more together on the side of the Targum. The Targum said that when they got married, they were not converted. They were not converted. And there seems to have been a situation where for reasons which we'll have to try and understand, the conversion of Ruth and Orpah was not considered valid or necessary or whatever, as the Targum says, and of course this goes against the Ibn Ezra, who says without question it is unimaginable that these two guys would, would marry out of the faith, and therefore there must have been a conversion. What, I, what I'm suggesting is that this argument, whether the conversion took place when Machlon and Kilion married Ruth and Orpah, was there a conversion or not, is a very significant debate amongst the rabbinic fraternity. Let me just show you one more, uh, two more items, because they're both fascinating. You've got a Midrash. And look at what the Midrash is, a very simple Midrash. They married Moabite women. And of course it stresses that Moabite women. Why is it stressed the Moabite? Tani B'Shei Rabbi Meir. We've got a very famous rabbi from the Talmud called Rabbi Meir. Lo Gairum Veloit Bilotam. There was no conversion. There wasn't even a Tvila. There was, they didn't go into the River Jordan to have a swim, like a, to, uh, to do a mikvah. They didn't do anything like that. And, and this has not become a law which, which uh, you know, sort of came about yet. The whole laws of conversion. 
Amoni v'lo Amonid, Moavi v'lo Moavid. Later on, the whole idea was that, that when it became known that, that uh, Moabite women could become Jewish, I suppose you could say retroactively, going back in time, you could then say that when they married Machlon and Kilion, you can sort of work it out that in reality there was not a sin. There was not a sin because later on, when it was established that the Moabite women can marry Jewish men, then looking back in history, when they were married to Machlon and Kilion, you can, kind of, you can sort of apply the halacha in reverse. Like in the, to say that this was the situation when they got married. It's, it's pushing the envelope. Basically, as far as the very, very ancient sources are concerned, I would argue the reality is most of the rabbis are upset, distraught, what, whatever word you want to use, that Ruth and Oropah are not converted when Machlon and Kilion marry them. And I just want to show you a very quick uh, piece. It looks very long, but I'm just not going to go through the whole thing. We, we, we've gone from the first century of the Common Era to the Middle Ages. We're now going to jump 500 years. And we're going to get to a commentary of Yol Sirikus. Yol Sirikus is a rabbi, phenomenal uh, individual, known by his uh, book that he wrote, the Bait Chadash, the Bach, commentary which is phenomenal. And look what he writes, and I'll just show you a little bit of his approach. Because he also can't handle the fact that there was no conversion. Listen to this, and I, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, I'll just show you a little bit. He says, He says, two points of view here, maybe are both correct. There was a conversion, and there wasn't. He's trying to make a compromise. How, how does it work? Here comes, here comes the real thing. Let me show you this. Um, hang on, let me just go back to this. Um, hang on, no. I think I've got to go here. Yeah. Let me just show you, because this is the verse. This is where the rabbis study Torah, and they literally go for every nuance that they can find. Look at this verse which refers to the marriages. Vayisu lahem nashim moviot. Translated, they married for themselves, lahem, Moabite women. So says Rabbi Circus, he says, wait a minute, there's extra words here. He could have just said, Vayisu nashim moviot. They married Moabite women. What's lahem? What does the word lahem mean to them? What? They married them and nobody else would, would be with them. That's what marriage is about. The woman is designated to him and not to anybody else. So this word lahem is very, very strange. Go back to this Rabbi Circus and you'll see what he says. And it, it's so brilliant. Even though I'm not happy with his compromise, I have to tell you. Listen to what he says. He says like this. He says, Ki vadai chas v'shalom. God forbid. Machlon tzaddik. Now, how does he, where does he get that from? Machlon was a tzaddik. I, I haven't read that anywhere. But he says that Machlon, this, this very righteous man, marry a non-Jew? Is it possible? He says, Ela It must have been a conversion took place. Ochein, however, he may have been a tzaddik machlon, but not more holy than Shimshon. Shimshon married a lot of Philistine women. And, and Shlomo, my favorite, married a thousand women. 
1,000 women, 700 with chup and kedushin, a caterer's dream, and 300 concubines, which means that there was no party, but it, there was a marriage, I don't know, a commitment, vows, or whatever you would call it. But it's unbelievable. And he says that what happened was that, uh, or he mentioned Shlomo Amela. He says, you did Hashem, Shlomo the friend of God. They married foreign wives. But what was it all about? He says, God forbid. Are you going to say to me that they married non-Jewish women? You know what? With all due respect to Rabbi Circus, when I teach that particular subject, that's exactly what I say. I said that that's one of the issues with Shlomo and with Shimshon. That they, 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 the boundaries became very fuzzy. Why did Shlomo marry so many women? Political marriages. And that's a big problem. And, and eventually they, 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 they bring down Shlomo. Uh, they, they cause the end of the kingdom of Shlomo. It's a terrible uh, situation, but that's for another time. So listen to this. Ella. Just want to get to the point. He says that you've just got to make sure what their motivation is all about. Just going to go down a little bit. And he says, what happened was, uh, just almost to the end here, um, the following. He says that what happened, The word lahem. What's going on over here? Why does it say they married for themselves? They declared themselves as their own rabbinical advisor. They became the rabbi overnight. Instant smicha. And their, their attitude was, it wasn't with consultation with the bed din. They were in Moab, for goodness sake. Where are they going to get a bed din? This was considered, In other words, even if they went through a chuppah, some sort of religious ceremony, the reality was that because they did it on their own cognizance, they didn't do it with rabbinic uh, support with rabbinic authority, the women remained not Jewish. Begayutam, they remained uh, uh, non-Jews. Afalpid, if sika hilchata, the perikah even though there is a halacha, dechadishashnit gaira l'shem ish kulam geirei the alma dereved kulam geirei. In other words, you can always argue that in second best, what we call bediavan. In a second best situation, they could be counted as converted. But, says, um, and this is where this is a real bombshell, says Rabbi Sirkus, and this is really what I wanted to get to, the reality of the situation with Ruth and with Orpah is, is quite shocking. According to the Targum, no conversion whatsoever. According to... Rabbi Ibn Ezra, there was an absolute necessity of conversion. No discussion. It's impossible to consider anything else. Rashi, I wanted to argue, because he makes Ruth talk about all of these halachic issues, which she obviously did not know about, till Naomi gave her the lesson in Judaism. Obviously, my, my feeling is that Rashi is siding with the fact that when Ruth and Orpah married the boys, married Machalon and Kilian, there was no conversion. Because Ruth didn't know anything. Right? With all due respect, she knew nothing of the basics of Judaism. And in fact, a lot of the things that Naomi informs her about are things which Ruth really would find very challenging. Right? Would find incredibly 
difficult. I mentioned two weeks ago we had a convert living with us in London for, for, for six months. And he worked in a very, what I would call not kosher uh, circumstance. He was, he, was, he was involved with a lot of young women. He wasn't married and it was to do with sales. And Don't ask. It was, it was not a job for a Jewish boy. And nevertheless, we, are, we, 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 we tried to give him a, uh, a chizuk, something to, 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 to encourage him. And one of the things that he had a real problem with, he, he was very excited that he could wear tzitzit. Because you, you wear it under your, under your shirt. That's fine. What he couldn't con- contemplate was the problem of wearing something on his head, having to wear a kippah. All of a sudden, you've got to go around all these stores and wearing... wearing um, I'm not sure if I'm hearing something. There we go. Wearing a kippah, he couldn't handle that. And eventually he did. You know what? He con- I mentioned this. He converted. He became the president of his shul, believe it or not. And a very fine individual. I have to say, in the end, it all worked out. But I remember having this long conversation with him about the, the issues of behaving like a Jew. You know, was dressing Jewish, looking a bit more Jewish. He had long hair, which obviously he would have to, he would have to cut. You know, in those days, it was, this was the 70s when, you know, everyone, look at the movies from the 70s, you'll see exactly what they're wearing, what they're looking like, you know, what's the fashion. And we, we had to explain to him that this was not going to be acceptable. And to the credit of the Bet Din in London, they, they went along with his wanting to be Jewish, and he was converted. It's an, it's an interesting story. So what the whole thing here is with Ruth, and with Orpah is again back to what we were saying before. The reality of it is, I think, according to Rashi, that she was not converted according to what we would say the bottom line halachic requirement. And if we go a stage further and we look at the Midrash, we saw that that clearly says that you know this was not um, marrying in, it was marrying out. The only compromise we can find is in the commentary of the Bach, the Bait Chadash. Rabbi Sirkus, who I think lived in Poland, and he says quite clearly that this was like a conditional um, con- um, a conversion. Why is it conditional? Conditional means that you, 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 would, you would marry on condition that they, there would be some sort of very limited, minimal commitment to being Jewish. And later on, obviously then the teaching would be uh, confirmed, etc., etc., and the, the, uh, uh, the conversion would become ratified. And of course, it's interesting, I'll just finish my sentence and I'll take questions. It's interesting that today in Israel, with the influx, particularly of the Ethiopian community, and before that the Russian community, there was a lot of controversy, there still is, about the whole question of conversion, of conversion of people coming to Israel who claim to be Jewish. I actually went to Russia in 1989, and I performed a chuppah in Minsk. Unbelievable. Um, we did it with a room when the windows, all the curtains were closed. It was behind closed doors. We were worried that the KGB were watching us. And the reason why the couple was so um, uh, determined to be, to be married Kadasu Kadin is because they were planning to leave for Israel. And they knew that when they get to Israel, if they haven't been married by a, an, a, an Orthodox rabbi, and I had to leave them my address and, and details so that the Israeli rabbinate could, uh, could ratify it, they would have massive problems when they arrived in Israel in terms of their Jewish status. 
And what the rabbinate does, I think to this very day, is insist on what we call a token conversion. When people come to Israel, they don't go through conversion at that point, but when they come to the Bet Din, particularly young couples come to get married, one of them or both of them may be Ethiopian or whatever, then the Bet Din says that there's got to be some token conversion which takes place. For the women, it's a bit easier. For the men, it's a bit more complicated. But I don't know exactly the details of what um, um, the ceremonies that they go through. But, for instance, a woman will, will go to mikveh anyway before the marriage. So that would alleviate that particular problem. And a conversion would happen, what, what, the, what the rabbis call in Israel, giyur l'chumra. It's converting with a a point of being a bit stricter, in other words, just to make sure. Because the Ethiopians were very upset that, that this was casting aspersion. This was saying, they're not really Jewish. Because if you're telling me I've got to convert, maybe it means I've never been Jewish. And of course, their tradition was very strong. That their Judaism was going right back, you know, in, in, into ancient history. So, why I'm telling you what's going on in Israel today is because we're learning the book of Ruth and was seeing this controversy which went on for hundreds of years. And you know what? It's still going on in the 21st century in Israel, in Israel in the 21st century. And it's not an easy uh, solution to find in all these cases, but there are solutions. And look at the Book of Ruth. In the end of the day, according to the Bach, according to Rabbi Sirkus, you have this kind of conditional circumstance without going into all the mechanics of it, and it seems to work, the problem with uh, Ruth and Orpah was that uh, Machlon and Achillion did it on their own bat. But if you do it in the sense of involving a Bet Din and all that um, um, uh, situation like, like one would have in Israel today, then it's very clear that that type of conversion to make sure, for instance, that someone is absolutely 100% Jewish, that is something which is done and is uh, practiced and is recommended to avoid any problems of Jewish identity, etc., in Israel, particularly in, um, you know, well, really all over the country. It's not just in one or two places. The, the application in Israel today, as I said, is a bit more complicated. I don't want to go through all of the issues of that. But I wanted you to see how interesting it is that the rabbis grapple with this problem of the conversion that took place uh, a long time ago, was there any sort of conversion? Was it a token conversion? What, what, what was going on? And you can see that this is very challenging. Rabbi Rabinovitz, remember, was the one who said, no conversion because they were marrying Moabite women to become more endeared to the Moabites. If you say to the Moabite princesses that you've got to become Jewish, it's the last thing that they want to hear if you want to raise an army and you want to get friends amongst the Moabites to go and bring them back to Israel, an army. You're not going to get friends insisting that the princesses become Jewish. That is not the way to win friends and influence people. Though the reality of it is that that, I think, is... Honestly, I honestly believe, hand on my heart, that that is the truth, that there was not a conversion that took place at that time. The conversion of Ruth later on is much more significant, is much more sincere, as we know. But at that point, when the boys are in the, uh, away from Eretz Israel and Elimelech is away, to, to suggest there was any sort of conversion, my honest opinion is, no, it's Gatenish. I don't think that's really the case. Uh, Elise, please. 
what doesn't make sense to me then is um, what happens later with her statement. It doesn't say that there was any procedural rabbinic conversion at any point, even though with Boaz later we <coughs> get to a very procedural issue um, that is handled correctly and by the book. But that this is seeming to suggest that by stating your loyalty in very you know de- in a declarative manner that you could succeed in conversion. Yeah, yeah. The the, the Gemara talks about the Gemara in Yevamot. The Gemara Vamot gives the, 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 the rules of conversion and says that in the story of Ruth, it sort of slots into part of what we actually require when a conversion takes place. The suggestion of the Talmud seems to be, without going into a whole discussion, that Ruth becomes the paradigm of the sort of discussions and questions and commitment that has to be made when a person comes to convert. But what is not happening in um, the book of Ruth seemingly is a procedure that we would recognize as a true conversion procedure, certainly not at the beginning, right? Later on, it may have happened with Boaz's um, involvement and all the rest, of, as we'll see, maybe we'll talk about that a bit when we go to chapter 2 and chapter 3, but basically it's, it's, it's minimal, minimal commitment, but it's something. Right, We know that part of the conversion procedure today is a commitment to observance of Jewish life. And as I mentioned really last time, I, 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 I think I mentioned this, I've, I've had students at Stern College in Yeshiva who've come from families where the families have converted. And it's so interesting, one girl, very from girl, sitting there with a shaykel, and I was talking about this whole issue of conversion, and she said to me after the lesson, can I tell you my story, and I always know there's going to be a story, and she told me that a family converted, and I looked at it, I said, wow, and what, you know, and she then showed, she said, I want to show you my document I have from one of the rabbis in Chicago, because she said what they did very, very smartly, the family was not as observant as she is, but they, they insisted... Let's try again. They insisted that the conversion was done by the highest authority in Chicago. And she had this beautiful star, this beautiful document, which, um, which, which I have a copy of. I've got it somewhere in my, in my filing cabinet of the conversion that was done by the rabbi, I don't remember the rabbi's name, I think he's still there. Um, and it's really something. These are very, very delicate issues, and I've been involved a little bit with it, not a lot, but I know that it is very, very delicate. Um, and as I said, you know, it's one of those things that the Book of Ruth, you can begin the conversation by looking at the Book of Ruth. Uh, it may not be the whole conversation, but it's the start of the conversation. And that makes it very interesting. It makes it very challenging. Uh, very, very quickly. Yaffa has a question. Yeah, Yaffa, yeah. please. And, uh, I'm debating if I should let my brother ask it. Um, it it's, it's fortuitous that you mentioned the Bayit Hadash. You do know that we are related to... Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> ten, ten generations. Of course. I think my sister can probably give you the exact lineage of my of my brother-in-law Shlomo, Rabbi Rebek. Oh right! Uh, but uh, it's so interesting that of all nights, this is who you brought as a source. Oh, I mean, I, 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 I'm now I'm now over- and overwhelmed. Too, so and that, that's really something. But I, I I wanted to just make a comment. Um, it seems to me that the whole era, uh, the whole biblical era, had plenty of 
mixed marriages. Oh, yeah. yeah. Without halachic conversions. I mean, the Jews grew to a bigger nation. They lived among those people. The, the Torah keeps, uh, the, the Tanakh keeps mentioning about Avodah uh, Zarah. You know, where do they get all that from their neighbors? And, uh, you know, it's obvious that they lived among uh, people and all of this stuff, all this halachic uh, conversions and, 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 and laws came much later. So, yeah. Uh, you know, I take a different take on, on Ruth. I mean, she's like the paradigm of bringing in Kiruv. Kiruv, right. I, I, I hear that. I tell you something, it's very very intriguing, this discussion, because to find evidence of what you were saying is, is not so easy. In other words, from the, from the earliest stories, Shlomo, even Shlomo Mela and Shimshon, which are two examples where it looks as if they married non-Jews. Well, they married a thousand women. I, I don't think... 1,000 Jews would marry one man. No, no, that's, that, I, mean, I mean, it's, it, the whole story is just so, it's a wild story. I, I always, I, when, I, when I teach it at Stern, I always say, you know, in fact, the first time I taught it, I, gave, I, I shocked the girls because they said it's like being married to the whole of, of, of Stern College at the same time, and they were pretty horrified with that thought. Um, and it is a pretty horrifying thought. The reality of it is, Rambam says, Rambam says, without question, Shlomo must have converted them. And without question, uh, Shimshon must have converted them. So my, my question is always, if I could speak to the Rambam, I'd say, but who lit the Shabbos candles in Shlomo's palace? You had a thousand women there from all over the world. Who lit the Shabbos candles? There's only two answers to that. Answer number one, Shlomo. Answer number two, Batsheva, his mum. Nobody else, because the women, that, that they, they had zero commitment to Judaism. And that you can prove, because as soon as they get a chance to go back to idolatry, they all run back to become idolatrous. What commitment was this? It's like Orpah in the story of Ruth. As soon as she could you know, she could break away. She went back to Moab, and she just returned to idolatrous life. So the reality of it is, it is very challenging to bring proof one way or the other what was going on. The halachis, as I said, it's like a bone stuck in their throat. Very hard to conceive of these people that we understand had a certain spiritual dimension, and at the same time doing things which for us, are just below the bottom line. They're just below, not just just below, way below the bottom line. And that's the challenge of, of, of uh, halakha, halachic application in Tanakh. It's, it's a much bigger topic. And I, I, I don't want to sort of jump into uh, more discussion because there's so many other stories which, which, which um, um, you know, bring this discussion to, to, to the front, but I wanted to mention it in the book of Ruth, because there it seems to be quite uh, extreme, the opinions. Going from one side to the other with the Bach in the middle, Bait Chadash, Rabbi Sirk is trying to make Sholem. He's trying to bring everybody together. That it really was, but it wasn't. They did it without permission, but they did it in a, in a kosher way. But, it, you know, he's trying to sort of find a halachic um, uh, path through what is really a minefield. And I, I, I hope that was interesting. I hope it's kind of uh, inspired you maybe to, to, to maybe do your own research. Uh, there are articles online about this which are really worth reading uh, in terms of the whole status of Ruth. 
you know, and and of course, what what the bottom line of all of it is is back to what we said at the beginning with Shmuel. Shmuel, in the end of the day, has got to establish that Ruth's credentials are one hundred percent. By the end of the book of Ruth, she's a hundred percent kosher. But how she got there, that's already a very challenging question. Uh, any final comments? Um, yeah. Um, who's? I'm, I'm the other daughter. Oh, hi, hi. Okay, my husband Shlomo. I just want to tell you, I think that um, what um, my take on uh, your um, wonderful discussion is the Bach's compromise lahem, and I think the whole evolution of the Desbin has to be examined here too, yeah. because if they, um, the, the Besdin existed later in, in a different way that it did, let's say, in, in Shimshon's time, or Shlomo Melech's time, so that uh, when they took Lahem, it's very um, real to imagine that they converted, they wanted to convert them, and that being because they really didn't have that much of a commitment. Right. Right. I think that's, and I think that's why the Bach's um, uh, compromise is really um, very poignant and 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 important for us to understand. These are being the best in role also in Gavus, because so many people, especially in America, when they take census, they say, "Oh, I'm a Jew," and they ask me, "You know, how did you become a Jew?" I decided. You know, <laughs> yeah. so it depends on the standard. And, uh, but they didn't, the way they coupled in Russia, needed a very standard base uh, It's, um, it's very, very controversial. Uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, good decision. But I want to tell you something that uh, Yafa and my daughter, I have the separate yoxing of my uh, Zayden. Wow. It, it lines up directly from son or daughter to... Very. All I can say is there's no there's no coincidences in Jewish life. It it was meant to be. I honestly I knew that that you had yichus with the Bach, but I'd forgotten it. I'd be honest. I was thinking more about um, uh, you know Mr. Weintraub and uh, my my interaction with him. He was such a wonderful guy, and I'd forgotten about the Bach. Abe told me about that once, and. What can I tell you? Tell you? I'm very excited. Yeah, please. Right. Something that you don't know, which is also serendipitous, oh, man. <laughs> uh, that you chose the Eben Ezra. Uh, my father was an expert in Eben Ezra on Chumash. Really? He loved the Ezra because of the, because of the emphasis on Dikduk, and he was an Hebraist, and my father was the Hebrew teacher for 44 years, right. so he was an he was. He would have loved tonight's shear with the Bach and with the Ebenezer. Beautiful. You know what? You know what the Chamalevis used to call Ibn Ezra? She, no, she said in Bnei Barak they call him Professor Ibn Ezra because he is so pedantic on each word. The, you know, the Haredi community can't handle that. That's a bit too much. But the fact is, Ibn Ezra was. I mean, I'll have to give a shear on Ibn Ezra once. It, it's it's above and beyond. It's above and beyond. Um, the, oh man, I'm really I'm overwhelmed a little bit by the Bach connection. I have to tell you, Baruch Hashem. Um, are there any final comments, Elise? Are we are we good? I think I'm done for this evening. Yeah, this was wonderful. Unless anyone has anything uh, further to say, I want to thank. Was it recorded? 
That's. I know. We actually did not. Record. I I recorded it. The voice. I recorded it. It's going to go on YU Torah. It will go on YU Torah, so it will be available. YU Torah, I'm sorry, is a recording of it? Yeah, yeah, there will be a recording. It will go up probably in the next day or two. Fabulous. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, next time, two weeks' time, Bezrat Hashem, we're talking about Geula, something that we, not the neighborhood. I know we spoke about Meir Sharib. We're not talking about that Geula. We're talking about a law which is mentioned in the book of Ruth, which is really quite extraordinary. Um, so we, we'll come to that, please God, in two weeks' time. The the poster has already gone out, and I'm mixing a little bit. By the, but by the time we get to Pesach, I hope we'll, we will have gone through what I want to finish on the book of Ruth. We're going to do a little bit on, on Megillah Tester. Um, there's, there's what to say there. There's a lot what to say. And also, Another please God, merit. please God, oh, wow. That I don't want to even talk about. And Mirza Hashem also, um, before Pesach, will do a little bit on the Haggadah. I think uh, I look forward to that as well. In the meantime, I just wish everybody, firstly, again, for the, um, for the Aliyat Neshama, it should be a Zuchut for the whole family, that we've studied Torah together like this. And we should always study together on happy occasions, on Smachot. And Bezrat Hashem, we should also, hopefully, have now another... Uh, something to look forward to, you know, in the bigger sense as well. I, I don't. I'm trying to stay apolitical. I'm trying not to make political comment. It's it's not my style. Uh, I wish everybody a very good evening and thank you all for participating. It's really appreciated. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you so much. Come again in two weeks. Free. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Let me know if anyone. Bye, Helen. Good night. Thank you. Bye, hon. <laughs> See ya. Bye-bye, everybody. Lila Tov. Lila Tov.